Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Starmer's made a pitch to disillusioned conservatives. And he's basically saying, you're safe with us. Many of my colleagues within the education profession, they saw children as human shields. Both Starmer and Rachel Reeves looking a darn sight more impressive than the conservative lot last week. That the minute you cross the threshold of Pearson Towers, you're straight into Gavin and Stacey mode. I've seen you in your <laughs> slippers and your rollers, but anyway. We have Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. A rather delayed hello there, co-pilot. Do wake up. (laughs) Greetings from the Labour Party conference in Liverpool, where delegates are streaming home. No train strike this week. Not like when the Tories had their Conservative Party conference in Manchester. And I have to say, Alison, there's been an air of happiness and excitement at this conference, with delegates sniffing power. While Rishi Sunak gave a pretty flat speech to his party faithful, Keir Starmer is widely viewed to have delivered the performance of his life. That's a pretty low bar, given that the (laughs) Labour leader's not known for his charisma. But there has been chatter here in Liverpool that Labour could be on the verge of a 1997-style landslide victory. While Labour are clearly odds on to win, we could still be a year away from a general election, though, and lots of things can happen. And Keir Starmer lacks the campaigning skills and broad appeal of a young Tony Blair. But overshadowing these political parlour games has, of course, been the shocking developments in the Middle East, not least the explosion of violence between Israel and the Palestinian terrorist group Hamas. This latest spate of murders, destruction and hostage-taking has shocked us here in the UK and indeed it has shocked the world. Any talk of a two-state solution currently seems absurd. You devoted your entire column to this subject this week, Alison, and rightly so. There's a link to the show notes in this episode, and we'll come on to that soon. But first, let's talk Labour. And even before that, I know you want to tell us of a quick tale from Carmarthenshire in Wales, the land of your fathers. Well, yes, Halligan, a bit of a kind of victory for the home team. I mean, I know we've been knocking them about on the rugby pitch, but yes, the protesters, listeners will remember the siege of Straddy Park Hotel, the marvellous, lovely, charming sort of Neo-Georgian hotel in Llanelli, which was about to become the residence of various of our illegal migrant friends. And the good people of Llanelli basically have blockaded the hotel, said they're not having their small community invaded by all these people. It was going to change the demographic of the population, particularly of the small village where the hotel is, very drastically. So they mounted this defence and it's home office nil, Wales 10. They're not going to do it. They're not going to put them there. Well, let's hope that's the score when the Welsh play the Argentinians on Saturday and the World Cup quarterfinal. (laughs) You've certainly done pretty well. Four wins out of four, I believe. I know. I won't gloat. It's it's unseemly. (laughs) I mentioned it because you didn't. Oh, hang about. (laughs) 
they seem to be fabulous. But yes, just to say quickly, will the Battle of Stradley Park inspire some defiance in other parts of the country with eight million quid a day now being spent on putting up illegal arrivals in British hotels. But anyway, Liam, you've been up in Liverpool. I haven't. I've just been watching on the telly. Quick snapshot, certainly seemed to me from my seat on the sofa that, you know, both Starmer and Rachel Reeves looking a darn sight more impressive than the Conservative lot last week. Indeed, just on Stradley Park, I was looking at the Home Office ruling and they said one reason they backed off from using Stradley Park, a wonderful hotel for housing asylum seekers waiting application was because of local civil unrest. Crikey, I mean, that's just going to encourage a lot more local (laughs) civil unrest. Oh, you want a bit of civil unrest now? Give them some Welsh sugar, boys. Give them some Welsh sugar. (laughs) We're very quiet people, but when we're roused, you don't want to mess with us. As you know, co-pilot, don't go mucking with South Welsh women. I tell you. Cambridge really knocked your Welsh accent out of it, didn't (laughs) it? You can even say, like they used to on either the engine. But anyway. The minute I cross the River Severn, I'm straight back into Gavin and Stacey mode, of course. you know. <laughs> Look, the minute you cross the threshold of Pearson Towers, you're straight into Gavin and Stacey <laughs> mode. I've seen you in your slippers and your rollers. But anyway, <laughs> less said about that, the better. So look, it has been, I must say, an impressive Labour conference. Rachel Reeves gave a speech on Monday to the party faithful that was very, very long on crowd-pleasing, tub-thumping rhetoric, very, very short on spending pledges and policies that actually involve more government borrowing. And I think that was probably right. Keir Starmer then gave a speech on Tuesday, which was, it was the best speech I've ever seen him give. I think he was kind of helped by the fact that he was attacked by a moron mm. from Surrey, inevitably. Yeah. Apologies to all our Planet Normal citizens in Surrey but a nice well-bred boy from Surrey who shouted something along the lines of the citizens must decide or something. Well, you live in a democracy, yeah. mate, so why don't you use your vote rather than <laughs> sabotaging the democratic process? But he handled it well. Yes, he did. He handled it so well. There are some people in the bars at party conference saying that must have been staged to, to sort of get the crowd on side and so he could take his jacket off and then look like Tony Blair fortuitously yeah. rather than deliberately and then all the – Starmer sparkles headlines and so on. I, I don't think it was staged because there are constantly people trying to get into party conferences. But what I do think is that you have to ask questions about security here. Yeah, you know, when the likes of me goes to a party conference, not least with my dodgy Hibernian background, shall we say, you go through a lot of security checks. Even someone like me who's been going to party conferences for many more years than I'd like to admit, but for Somebody who clearly had malintent to be able to get that close, I mean, indeed, put his arm round and if he wanted to, wrestle to the ground the leader of the opposition on primetime national television when the world is watching, just blows the mind, really. Very, very worrying. But I do think it helped Keir Starmer. And he gave a speech, which again was very long on rhetoric and short on costed policies. I guess the centrepiece of his speech, he must have been reading my Telegraph column last week, of course, because Mm -hmm. whereas Rishi Sunak didn't mention housing at all in his speech, an issue which we know is of huge importance to so many, not just young people, but their parents, their grandparents, young kids paying so much money to rent, so few of them now able to get on the housing ladder, 25 to 34-year-olds spending more of their monthly wage, the weekly wage on their housing costs, whether they rent or buy less likely to own a home than any generation 
since the 1930s. And so Starmer went big on housing. He's talking about a new wave of post-1945 style labour, new towns, of course. It was the 1948 under Clem Attlee Town and Country Planning Act, which launched new towns, the likes of Stevenage, Crawley, Harlow, Corby. You know, lots of people will be sniffy about new towns, but a lot of my relatives from Ireland who started out in in bad parts of London moved to new towns and had really happy lives there. Yeah. Milton Keynes was pretty much opened, if you like, the year of my birth in the late 60s. And again, the bien pensant media class are sniffy about it, roundabouts and concrete cows and so on. Endless surveys of happiness show that people in Milton Keynes are among the happiest in the UK. More companies form per head in Milton Keynes than any other place in the country. The real problem, Alison, is that we haven't built a new town, a new settlement in my lifetime, and I'm the wrong side of 50. And yet during that period, the population's gone up by 15 odd million. I think that's right. And of course, we can look back to even before then, the train I take into London goes through Welling Garden City and Letchworth and places like that, which were built as ideal towns for people moving out of London. And I think that's precisely what we need. And I think what you're pointing out, Liam, is that I just simply couldn't believe the Rishi Sunak speech because if you'd asked a sort of you know random ten thousand British voters to jot down their major concerns, I don't think let's switch the A level to to a baccalaureate. Baccalaureate, what's that? And you know, stopping kids smoking, which although uh, you know a noble long term aim has got sort of bugger all to do with the price of fish, has it? I mean, it was absolutely incredible. And I think all credit to Labour for majoring on things like housing, cost of living. Do you remember before, they were obviously being super cautious. They do not want a single mistake, do they? Because they can feel power now, as you said, they can sniff it. And I think it was in 1996 that somebody said, I can't remember, you all know who it was, not Gerald Kaufman, someone like that said that Tony Blair approaching power was like seeing someone carrying a Ming vase across a highly polished floor. You know, don't drop it, don't drop it. But apart from the being super cautious, I mean, it seemed to me as a Conservative voter, although I, I did vote three times for New Labour, it seemed to me now as, as notionally a Conservative voter, but like so many Conservative voters, massively disillusioned. So Keir Starmer's made a pitch to disillusioned Conservatives. And he's basically saying, you're safe with us, which was the Blair line as well. And I guess the question I have, Liam, is there anything Labour intends to do that the Conservatives haven't already done themselves or even worse. So taxes are about as high as they can possibly get. Immigration is out of control. So in a sense now, for lots of Conservatives, you're thinking, well, I don't particularly want to vote Labour, but how could they possibly be worse? I think it was Roy Jenkins who said that because he he was, of course, one of the founders of the SDP. Well, I was a lobby correspondent, political correspondent at that time when Jenkins was still around. I I was lucky enough, I got to know him because there was that love in between the Lib Dems and Labour in the run-up to the 97 election, of course. Talk of a progressive alliance between them. When, of course, Tony Blair got his 179th seat majority, all notion of collaboration between the Lib Dems and Labour went out the window because Labour didn't need the Lib Dems anymore. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So... I think that there's been very, very careful party management here in Liverpool. I know people at the top of the party were concerned 
that this ghastly violence in the Middle East would impose on the conference because there are lots of Labour members and activists who are very instinctively sympathetic towards Hamas and the Palestinian cause. Mm. And there was a bit of that on the fringes, and we'll come on to that. But I think in general, they got away with the party management. But look, there's an issue here. Rachel Reeves, Keir Starmer, they gave speeches that were very light in terms of tax and spend. In terms of the difference between Labour and the Tories, Labour instead pressed sort of class war buttons. So the only tax rises that they're admitting that they want to do is to raise taxes on so-called non-DOMs, very wealthy international foreign people that live in the UK and don't pay tax on their worldwide income. And so they have a very attractive tax regime to live and spend their money and invest in the UK. Labour reckon they're going to get three and a half billion quid out of that. A secret treasury report says no, because all these people will leave. They're sophisticated tax-wise. That's why one reason they're wealthy. They're not going to sit there and wait for the tax man to clobber them. A secret treasury report, which the excellent Tony Diver revealed in the Telegraph back in June this year, people can look it up, said, actually, you won't make money out of these non-DOMs. It will cost you money because so many of them will leave and they'll spend and invest less. The Treasury said it actually costs Labour 300 million rather than raise 3.5 billion. So that's one tax rise they're doing that the Tories aren't. Another tax rise, of course, is the bone that they're throwing to the Labour left, which is to put VAT on and business rates on independent schools. And of course, lots of schools will end up having to pass that on because they're not particularly wealthy and they're relatively small. And I think a lot of people leave the independent sector. And so they will have to go to the state sector. The state sector will have to find more places. Declare an interest. I am a governor of two independent schools. So I've discussed this and thought about it very much. No one really knows what will happen, but I can't see again that they're going to make hundreds of millions of pounds out of that. It strikes me, it's quite amusing, isn't it, how the saved money from the nom-doms and the VAT on schools, it's like the magic money tree, isn't it? Every time they say, how are you going to pay for that? They say, oh, the nom-doms. And you just think, yeah, right, there's not going to be as much money. And of course, we know that if some of these smaller private schools close down, that's going to be those kids going back into the state sector. They're not just going to make money from that VAT because they're going to have to pay for an awful lot of kids. A lot of kids are going to be taking up places at local schools. It strikes me, Liam, that they may be on course for a clash with the left because you said in a very good analysis, you did, that Rachel Reeves was seeking to reassure the financial markets that a Labour government would not spend or borrow irresponsibly, whereas a lot of the Labour stalwarts are looking for a sort of high taxes, more splashing on public sector wages and, you know, public sector expansion. And it it seems to me that if they do get in, we're heading for quite a serious clash because the only way, if we can't grow, the only way we can get any money is by slashing those public services, which a lot of us feel have got a lot of excess fat in them now. Yeah, it's interesting. Just on the independent school fees, there's a real kind of nastiness about that policy. The cheer in the room when that went up was visceral. It was like a kind of pitchfork cheer rather than a sort of, oh, we're very happy cheer. And indeed, a bunch of independent school heads, many of them from very humble schools, you know, schools for kids with special needs, uh, local schools that are very much not Tom Brown's school days, where fees are modest and lots of families are sending their kids there. And some of the big public schools too, that offer a multitude of bursaries and opportunities to the local communities. 
So a bunch of independent school heads held a reception at Labour conference. They invited 40 Labour MPs who they know have independent schools or many independent schools in their constituencies. And it was very much presented as an opportunity to share ideas and discuss how we can take this policy forward to do the minimum of damage for the maximum of gain, to talk about how independent schools can do more on the charitable front and so on. So out of the 40 Labour MPs and peers who were invited, not one turned up to that reception. Yeah. So that tells you where the Labour Party is coming from on this, I would say. And on the broader picture, Rachel Reeves spent almost no money in her speech. Keir Starmer spent almost no money in his speech because they both know to their fingertips that financial markets would take umbrage if in the run-up to any Labour government, they were laying out big spending promises. Just last week, Alison, government bond yields here in the UK hit a 25-year high. What does that mean in ordinary language? It means the government is has to pay more now in interest to borrow than at any time since the late 1990s. And we're already spending mm. 110 billion quid on debt interest, a number which should be on the front page of every newspaper every day, if you ask me, because yeah. it's second only to the NHS in terms of government spending. And I think if the public got their head around that dead money we're spending on debt service, that £110 billion is just an unbelievable number. It's far more than we, quote, saved during the austerity years. And we're using it on debt interest this year, and it will be even more next year because, of course, we're adding to borrowing all the time. And so that's why Reeves and Starm were so careful not to spend more money metaphorically and why they went so big on the kind of class war rhetoric to keep the left happy. But I heard an interview with John McDonnell that hasn't been widely publicised, and it's really interesting. This, of course, is the Labour former deputy leader during the Corbyn years. Mm -hmm. And he said, when asked about Keir Starmer, does Keir Starmer have an ideology? I don't know what it is, and that doesn't really bother me. Because when we are in power, said John McDonnell, it's the Labour movement that counts. And the rank and file members will tell the leadership the policies that we need. The Labour Party is far more kind of beholden to its members when it comes to policymaking and certainly manifesto writing than the Tory party is. And it may be as we get nearer an election and if Starmer maintains this lead in the polls and the left, the hard left, which is still there, and Starmer's front bench is much more left wing than Blair's front bench was in the mid 90s before they won in 1997. If the hard left thinks that they're going to win anyway, they're going to start making demands. And here's an observation that I think rings true. If you are concerned about the extremes of, of a Labour government, you want them to win big, like Blair won big. Because when Blair got 179 seats, he could basically tell the left of his party to technical term, naff off, right? If Starmer wins with a 30-seat majority, then he is beholden to the left because he's going to need that campaigning group of left-wing MPs to do anything, and they will have him by the proverbial short and curlies. That's a very good observation, co-pilot. I've been working on it for some time. Yeah. <laughs> You're improving week by week. I'm going to read it in your column next week. So. <laughs> 
I noticed they do have to win 123 seats. But of course, after last week's very resounding victory in a Scottish by-election, there is clearly some hope that they'll be able to take some, if not all, of those 40 Scottish seats that they lost back. And that's going to give them an advantage. It was interesting, wasn't it? Although they were being quite modest and anxious, Rachel Reeves did say, when we next meet, I intend to address this hall as Britain's first female Chancellor of the Exchequer. I've got no issue with her, Liam. I have got concerns about the calibre of a lot of that shadow front bench. As you say, scratch the surface of the respectable middle-of-the-road ones and you get some very, very extreme views, which I think I won't vote for them, whatever reassurances they give, because Keir Starmer last said that he said that 99% of women don't have a penis. I think a lot of women will still be hesitant about voting for them. And by the way, we did have a Planet Normal listener who wrote in great dudgeon saying that I was advising people to vote Labour. I absolutely am not advising people how to vote. I wasn't saying vote Labour. I was saying that they don't look that much different from the very, very woeful Tory government we have at the moment. But talking, Liam, about the worrying standard of some of the people who could be assuming high office in the next 12 months, we saw David Lammy, the Shadow Foreign Secretary. This week of all weeks, the brutal massacres by Hamas in Israel. I'm going to talk about that. And uh, Lamy attended on Tuesday evening the Labour Friends of Palestine fringe meeting. I thought that was grossly insensitive and also raised serious questions about the man's diplomatic ability. Indeed. And there were other fringe meetings which the likes of John McDonnell attended, you know, Corbyn era front benches. But, you know, David Lammy is Keir Starmer's front bencher. And I wonder, this is the Tottenham MP, I wonder if he got clearance from the leader of the opposition's office before he went to that fringe. I can't imagine that he wouldn't have, actually, given the, the amount of control that the leader of the opposition's office is now exerting. But praise where praise is due. They did have a minute silence. You were there, weren't you? They had a minute silence for Israel. And it was very moving. It was moving. And Starmer has gone out of his way twice, both in his speech and on the Today programme yesterday, Wednesday morning, to say that Israel has a right to defend herself and that Hamas is to blame. I thought that was a bold and encouraging statement, given that we know that lots of the numpties who've been out on the street with their Palestinian flags draped around them would be natural Labour supporters. But as you said, Liam, I've dedicated my entire column this week to the profoundly shocking and barbaric events in Israel. Got various Jewish friends in Israel and in America. And over the weekend, I was copied in on many of these Facebook threads. And you know how normally it's please help me find my missing cat. This was, please help us find our missing grandmother. Please help us find our missing son. They kept on coming and it's so, so dismaying. There are huge numbers of things. We could dedicate the whole podcast. In fact, we could dedicate a month of podcast to teasing out all the elements. But as everyone knows now, Hamas breach supposedly the best security and intelligence in the world to massacre over a thousand Israelis in one day. And that included, we obviously seen grandmothers being carted off, little children, over 150 people are in Gaza right now, 
as hostages. And we've never seen videos like this of defiled young women being manhandled into jeeps and open top trucks. And at the centre of it was something I think you and I can relate to very well was the supernova festival in the Negev desert, very near the border with Gaza. It was a peace festival, Liam, billed as a journey of unity and love. A lot of very liberal, young Jewish people who would have a lot of sympathy with the Palestinians. And our listeners may have seen it. There's an incredible video that was shot they're all dancing. It's the early morning, you know, everyone's having a lovely time, loved up time. And uh, you can just see in the early morning sky, these black dots. And they were the paragliders, the motorized paragliders that were bringing the devils of Hamas to massacre the innocents. At least 260 young people, most of them the ages of our own kids, Liam, in their 20s, they were hunted down like game, really and murdered. And and I think, you know, I did try to write about it as best I could, but you do struggle to find the words for degradation on that scale. The various things I'd like to put to you, really, we've got the BBC attracting huge criticism for hesitating to use the word terrorist, lest it prejudice their coverage, according to veteran correspondent John Simpson. I mean, why would we call people terrorists who come and behead babies, you know, and all the assorted other things? We've also seen those disgraceful pro-Palestinian rallies on the streets of London and other Western capitals. Gas the Jews, they shouted outside the Sydney Opera House. Uh, British police not wading in as they do for any minor hate crime on the internet. And then sad, very, very sad, British jury, very scared, schoolchildren being told they don't have to wear blazers to school in case they are identified as Jews. I know you'll agree with me when I say it's completely unacceptable for Jews to be scared in their own country. So lots to talk about, but I'm just going to say this marks for me a historic crossroads. Normally what happens when there's been atrocities Israel gets a few days leeway, as a Jewish friend said to me earlier this morning, oh, people love dead Jews. They like they love us when people are dead. The minute that Israel starts fighting back and there's going to be a huge carnage in Gaza, there just is because they now, you know, they're going to go in and they're going to get them this time because the moral outrage, Hamas has signed its own death warrant, in my view. They have gone too far. They, that 22 countries, Liam, lost someone in the massacres. So it's not Israel alone now. 22 countries are on board. And I would just say to all the people, all the apologists for Hamas, the Bible says some sins are so evil that they cry to heaven for vengeance. That's where we are. Ghastly scenes, Alison. I heard a lot of fringe meetings where the cameras weren't at Labour conference, where it got quite heated. You had people pointing out all the excellent points that you've made. You had other people pointing out that lots of Palestinian kids are dying too. It reminds me, it put a knot in the stomach the way the troubles in Northern Ireland used to put a knot in my stomach because. You know, I grew up in a part of North London, a working class part of North London. I grew up with many Jewish families, taxi drivers, greengrocers, who those families completely inspired me. They're the reason I went to university, did a huge amount for me. And this, this trouble absolutely moves me. How ironic it's 50 years on 
October 73 from the, the ghastly Yom Kippur War. I wouldn't be an economist if I didn't point out that that led to a massive escalation in the oil price. The Arab world um, flexed its OPEC muscles and really squeezed the West. It's when cars in America went from being big gas guzzlers to small Japanese compacts to save fuel. The Yom Kippur War completely changed geopolitics, a huge event. In some ways, we're not there yet in terms of the geopolitical fallout, but we could get there, not least because the Americans are now much more energy self-sufficient. They're not entirely self-sufficient, but they're not as reliant on OPEC as they used to be. But that leaves Europe exposed energy-wise if indeed you know, oil prices shoot up, gas prices shoot up as a result of this, and there are some signs that they are already. But of course, the real historic comparison here, and it would be churlish not to mention it, isn't 1973. The real historic comparison here is the 1930s and the absolute human horrors that followed. And you, know, you can hear in my voice, such an awful, such an awful development. Hi, I'm Phil Spencer, and I'm here with Telegraph Money, your new complete guide to being better off. From saving and investing to pensions and, of course, property, Telegraph Money puts a wealth of expert opinion plus useful tools and calculators right at your fingertips. Explore more from me and our personal finance experts now. Search Telegraph Money today. done any COVID stories for a while, Liam, and I thought it was time we got a true hero of the resistance on the rocket. For 19 years, Mike Fairclough was headmaster of West Rise Junior School in Eastbourne. The school won awards as Mike's young pupils learnt skills like beekeeping, water buffalo breeding, and even shooting. Mike Fairclough outlined his theories that children would thrive if they were challenged in books like Rewilding Childhood and Playing with Fire, Embracing Risk and Danger in Schools. Always putting the safeguarding of children first, Mike was one of very few teachers to speak out publicly against lockdown. He was also the only British head teacher to oppose the COVID vaccines for children because he considered the kids were at no risk from the virus and should not have an unnecessary and undetested medical treatment. For that heresy, Mike Fairclough was martyred by East Sussex County Council. He was cleared of misconduct in several investigations, only to have new charges levelled against him. Mike has now resigned and will be taking his case to an employment tribunal next autumn, a very important case for freedom of speech. His mental and physical health has suffered enormously. On the day that we spoke, Mike, who is known as the hunky head, had just got back from a sanity-restoring swim in the nearby sea, where he was delighted to meet a wild seal. I began by asking Mike Fairclough when he began to feel concerned about the impact that the government response to the pandemic was having on the children in his care. So I remember being in my car and listening to Boris Johnson on the radio saying many of us will lose 
loved ones I was really worried because at that point there was no information with regards to how the vast majority of the population were at low risk of serious illness from COVID particularly children and it was interesting because I I sent an email to my parents and said you know if it's up to you but if you'd like to keep your child off until we know what's going on then then please do and quite a number did interestingly the people who since have complained and attacked me for um, having the complete opposite view with regards to school closures and the vaccine rollout to children and masking etc were all against me closing the school because it wasn't coming from on high nobody in authority had said this is what you must do and this was when I first started hearing people like just parrots whatever they were told I'm not going to hang around for somebody to say what to do I'm just going to do what I want to do about four weeks I think after my initial response and reaction that I started to read and hear information given with regards to the severity of COVID and the fact that it wouldn't be a big problem for like most people and Chris Whitty actually specifically said that that was the initial response but it was uh, in late 2020 early 2021 that I started to comment on the COVID vaccine rollout to children which was all being kind of mooted at the time. So the UK kept its schools closed longer than any other European country except Italy. Sweden never closed schools for under 16s at all. In your view Mike was it pressure from the teaching unions that kept schools here shut for so long? Was it caution and weakness at the Department of Education? Or what do you think it was? Why were our schools closed for so long? So I don't know the answer to that. I, all I can say is that it, there's an excuse that the first lockdown was everything was new and no one knew what they were doing. So they, they just had to do it. I don't like to entertain any sort of quote conspiracy theory and just go on with the facts that are available and and it was interesting because um, the Telegraph's lockdown files was really insightful with regards to all of this and it felt like it was there's these sort of you know really like Matt Hancock in particular was making decisions which were politically motivated. I think it's completely reasonable and fair to say that the key decision makers everyone from Boris Johnson to Rishi Sunak to Matt Hancock all of those sorts of people none of them it appears in retrospect were actually worried about the virus because they were all meeting in groups or having parties or in Matt Hancock's having his um, fling with his aide and all the rest of it you know they were saying so so you must all to the general public you must stay in your houses don't leave unless you have to get medicine or food you can have an hour's exercise and just when you're out there just don't stop well it was it was the double standard I mean if if you think about it I mean I look back now can you imagine I remember being in London and seeing this playground in quite a poor area of London, and there were bolts and chains on the playground gate. Now, can you imagine the impact on children? Children were, anyway, they weren't, as we have established, they were incredibly low risk. I should just remind listeners, actually, that the death rate from COVID for those aged 0 to 19 is 0.0003%. That's a 1 in 333,000 
chance of dying. Teenagers are more likely to die of flu than COVID. But nevertheless, Mike, we did stop children's sport on Saturday mornings. We locked up playgrounds. Could you believe that was happening? I mean, as a head teacher, obviously incredibly distinguished and and loving, compassionate head teacher, you must have known what that was all going to do. Yeah, so what I couldn't believe was the unions were pushing for uh, school closures, for masking, the vaccination of children. And it's the fact that there were a, a large number of teachers and some head teachers as well who spoke to me personally and sent me messages and said, I, you know, I'm really not happy about what's going on. Thank you for speaking out, but I'm not going to speak out because uh, of fear of reprisals. So there was that group who I, I, I think that's, that's probably our, one of our biggest problems in our country at the moment is people self-censoring out of fear on all manner of different things. There's the larger group who absolutely believed that it was the right thing to do. There are a lot of people within the education profession who believe that lockdowns were saved uh, millions of lives and they were necessary. And it was necessary for children to make that sacrifice to protect adults. And that's what I feel most disappointed about with regards to the unions and many of my colleagues within the education profession. They saw children as human shields and so they felt it was necessary for children to take on that role. Can you just explain so there were three whistleblowing complaints against you now were they made to East Sussex County Council and what form did the investigations against you take what what were you told? They were made to East Sussex County Council and to the school. So after this one in in, uh, May 21, I had a second one in November 2021. And the common theme with the first and second one was my opposition to the COVID vaccine rollout to children. East Sussex County Council, my employer, commissioned um, an independent investigator to look into me and I had a whole day of answering questions. I was cleared of any wrongdoing because it was concluded that I have a right to lawful free speech. The third one, which came in November 2022, um, the uh, complainants again were saying that I was... um, spreading medical misinformation. They also said that I was voicing anti-government messages on social media. My mission was to try and communicate in a way where people who were, so parents of children who were undecided could make an informed decision. That was my mission. I think I achieved that because I haven't had any parents come up to me and say that they disagreed This third complaint uh, was much more sinister because they raised the complaint under PREVENT, which is the government's counter-extremism department. I was also reported to the Department for Education Counter-Extremism Division and to Ofsted and to the Children's Commissioner, etc. The um, counter-disinformation units and, you know, the 77th Brigade, etc. were eyes off your traditional you know, Islamic terrorists and all the rest of it, and on to domestic citizens who were questioning government policy on COVID. So there was a feel at that time uh, that if you dared 
question what was going on that you would be regarded as a dangerous extremist. For the third time, I was cleared of any wrongdoing in relation to the allegation. Uh, And each time, East Sussex County Council, at the end of each investigation, would say, you have a right to free speech on this matter. But then they would then entertain another whistleblowing complaint about exactly the same thing and this was the bit which kind of pushed me sort of over the edge as it were really because I you know I've never been in that position before and I just thought wow what's going to happen is that you know am I going to get my door kicked down by the anti-terror police or something my kids taken away I've got a young family I've got four kids 26 year old and 19 year old and two six-year-old twin daughters and, and my wife in the house and it was just like this is really really extreme you know, I had a great reputation before. It's like, you know, like 19 years as head teacher, 30 years in the profession. And bearing in mind the things that I've done at the school have been previously so controversial that I would have expected people to have complained <laughs> and maybe in retrospect think, well, you know. Yes, I was just, I was just going to come to that. So you resigned as headmaster of West Rise in September alleging serious breaches of contract by East Sussex County Council. You say you consider yourself to be constructively dismissed. Did you feel you were unable to stay on? Yeah, I said to East Sussex County Council, right, I can understand if I were to, if they or the school were to receive a complaint about something else, they would need to investigate it, you know. But I said to them, if you are were to receive the identical complaint with regards to my campaigning about the COVID vaccine rollout to children, bearing in mind that I, I, I feel that that's possibly going to come back again. I think it's, it's such a great role, a great business model for Big Pharma and everyone else. I can't see why they wouldn't want to continue it. So I've, you know, I've wanted to continue to campaign and to uh, exercise my right to lawful free speech on this matter. And I said, could you just say, you know, guarantee that if you've got that exact same Um, uh, uh, complaint bearing in mind on three occasions you've told me that I have a right to free speech on that matter will you not uh, investigate me and they said that we're we're unable to to say that we will not investigate you so this was essentially using the uh, in my view the 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 whistleblowing process to silence disapproved of views i have a right to lawful free speech this is clearly in in my view discrimination and this is now the basis of a claim you're taking to an employment tribunal in November 2024, that's next year. What are you hoping to get out of that? I've got the brilliant support of the Free Speech Union and uh, there's uh, the Chief Legal Counsel there, Bryn Harris, has been great. I've also got the most amazing barrister on side called Paul Diamond, who is the leading civil liberties barrister in the country. This is a case which could set a precedent. In order to take it to the tribunal, I've had to clarify what it is that I've been discriminated against. So I've had to clarify and describe what my philosophical belief is and my philosophical belief is as follows I have a strongly held philosophical belief in the importance of critical thinking freedom of speech and safeguarding children Uh, I think that's particularly important now because what that basically means is I think about things and then 
I talk about things in the interest of safeguarding children. And if you look at what's happening in the education sector at the moment, particularly around gender ideology, or even going back to what I've been campaigning about throughout the pandemic, so, you know, masks and the, the school closures and vaccine rollout to children, etc., etc. There are lots and lots and lots of colleagues, as I've said, who know that there are lots of things wrong and who think about who think about these things and privately say, oh, I don't really agree with what's going on, but they don't say anything about it, which is that free speech aspect. So they might be critical thinkers, but they don't exercise their right to lawful free speech. And they certainly don't then fulfil their legal ob- obligation to safeguard children against harm. This case could set a precedent moving forward for people in the workplace with regards to free speech. It's a very, very important one for protecting children. Mike, were you surprised or disappointed by the failure of these organisations which are designed for children's welfare to speak out at the time. And not only that, but Gillian Keegan, the Education Secretary, I nearly went through the roof. She said recently that they couldn't rule out closing schools again in the future. I thought, are you out of your mind, woman? Were you disappointed? It's disappointing. It's also it's virtue signalling. So um, it didn't take a rocket scientist to work out that if you close down the economy uh, repeatedly, that it's going to cause economic ruin and harm the most vulnerable in society, including children. What they've done is they've failed in their duty. I, th- I apply that to Ofsted, to the children's charities. People's need for self-preservation has trumped their civic duties. The majority of people, if they are told by an authority figure to stay silent and not say anything, they that's what they'll do. And they'll just think, well, someone else can sort it out. And I think that's one of the, the biggest things that we need to work on and something that I'm kind of thinking about and writing about at the moment, actually. Mike, here on Planet Normal, we think you're a warrior and we wish you well in your employment tribunal and we'll talk to you about that later. I think it's hugely important for teachers to have the right to speak up on behalf of children. We know you're the most fantastic head and I sincerely hope you won't be lost to education in the future because we really need inspirational teachers like you. Mike Fairclough, thank you so much for coming on Planet Normal. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. I have to say, Alison, in the great pantheon of Planet Normal guest interviews, that's right up there. We so often discuss who we're going to ask on Planet Normal, don't we? Mm. We feel the sort of duty and obligation as people who work for a newspaper to get big names, headline pullers, cabinet ministers, shadow cabinet ministers. But some of our best interviews are with people who aren't so much in the public eye or just on the fringes of the public eye. What an incredible story. What an incredible man. Mm. And I learned a lot during that interview because I learned, and I'll now pay very close attention, so well done you, just how important this test case could be, this legal proceedings that Mike is bringing with his star barrister that will generate publicity, that could set an important precedent. And the name Mike Fairclough could become very well known indeed. I'm such a fan of his and I've been wanting to get him on the podcast for some time. I think, you know, as things move on, we've got the COVID inquiry grinding ever so slowly along. But we can forget, Liam, that there are victims still, not just victims of COVID, victims of lockdown, which we've always tried to highlight. 
And there was Mike Fairclough, the most successful, brilliant headmaster, this wonderful junior school that was always picking up awards. And as you could hear, you know, he's such an advocate of getting children out and teaching them to be resilient and to do brave things. And he did this brave thing. He was one of the only teachers in the country to speak about the damage that lockdown was inevitably going to do to developing children. And of course, now vindicated by the week, but with, as we've seen, children's charities who were almost entirely silent when children were being harmed in their homes, not able to go to school for a reassuring teacher to look them over and pick up bruises and so on. So Mike saw all that. And he also took a very bold stand about children not getting the vaccine, which he had researched very carefully and had decided it was under-tested. That isn't even open to debate. Normally, a vaccine from invention to, you know, rollout would be a decade. And he felt that on balance, and this again is borne out by the statistics, that the risk to any child from naught to 19 from COVID was absolutely tiny, almost non-existent. So he did take that speak out against the vaccine for which he has been harassed and has had his professional status challenged, constant investigations by the school, by East Sussex County Council. Horrendous. Absolutely horrendous. And keep clearing him, saying, oh, you're free to talk in your personal capacity as you like, and then bam, it's back with another investigation. And I'm sure listeners can hear Mike is a very determined, buoyant person trying to see the positive saying, oh, you know, I'm not as badly off as some people. But you can hear that this very remarkable spirit has been absolutely crushed by this really shocking attempt to punish him for daring to do his duty, which is to protect children. He does come across, Alison, as a very professional person, a very buoyant personality. He clearly loves working with children. He's sort of a cross between you know, Mr. Chips and Bear Grylls, isn't he, with his combination <laughs> is, of yes. scholarship and forestry and outdoor activity. I mean, the kind of guy I wish had taught my children, though I must say my kids were lucky enough to have many excellent teachers anyway. I think it's worth pointing out, Alison, you know, we spent this entire podcast, understandably, rightly, on the Labour Party conference on what's going on in the Middle East. It's been a while since we've talked about COVID, but beyond the headlines, Alison, this COVID inquiry is happening. It is going on. In the last week, you know, we heard from Anne Longfield, England's former children's commissioner. She told the inquiry that kids will be living in the long shadow of COVID for the next two decades. She told the inquiry to keep schools shut while pubs were open was a mistake. I do think some of the testimony of this inquiry is good, but I still worry about the scope of the inquiry. The inquiry seems to me it's hearing this testimony, which very few people will read, and it's barely making any headlines, even though it's absolutely sensational stuff. But I don't think the inquiry is interrogating the decisions that ministers made. I think it's all about, you know, lessons will, will be learned and we'll all move on and we're all good chaps. This doesn't seem to me like an inquiry with nearly enough teeth to reflect 
the absolutely massive implications of lockdown for our civil liberties, for our economy, for our children, for the entire way the country is governed, for our entire political philosophy. I do despair. This inquiry is going to cost millions and millions. It's going to take far longer than almost any other country's inquiries. But I do not think there's going to be any conclusions that really hit home. No, that is the worry. Just to let listeners know that there is a Mike Fairclough has a crowdfunder for his legal action, which is in conjunction with Democracy 3.0. And I'll, I'll certainly be giving something to it. If you've got any spare pennies, it's a really worthwhile cause because no one could have put themselves on the line more for British children than Mike Fairclough. Now it's time for our listener emails, the messages you send to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We've had some fantastic ones. Inevitably, Liam, we've got various emails coming in from readers about the tragic events in Israel. Julie says, I've just read Alison's column about the awful events and I have tears streaming down my face. Even after five days of reading about what happened, the shock and disbelief that this could happen hasn't lessened. In fact, the more one hears, the more shocking it is. What should shock me but doesn't anymore are some people's opinions and support of Hamas in spite of what it has done. I agree with you wholeheartedly and I despair for this country and its lack of values. And here's one from Mrs. Scott. 52 members of my family were murdered in the Holocaust. I remember going to Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center in Jerusalem. I was completely overwhelmed with the sadness and horror of it all. To know that today there are still thousands of people who will stop at nothing to see every Jewish person wiped off the face of the earth is a truly terrible reality. Here's one from Bruce. As I sit at the back of economy class on the rocket of right thinking, (laughs) there are no other seats, Bruce. Confident in the pilot's guidance system and direction of travel, I'm nonetheless having pause for thought when it comes to the idea of handing the reins to Labour. Looking back at the wasted 13 years of Tory rule, I feel as I might spontaneously combust at any moment. But considering the reasons for failure, I look elsewhere in my concerns. The gravest mistake the Tories under Cameron made was not to unwind the damage of the Blair-Brown reforms. Indeed, They were misguidedly huge fans of Blair and doubled down, setting up bodies such as the Office for Budget Responsibility. The constitutional changes affecting, importantly, the House of Laws and Judicial System, the introduction of NGOs, devolution, were all designed to remove parliamentary scrutiny from central government and were reinforced, says Bruce, by sleeper cell legislation such as the Equality Act and Climate Change Act. Gordon Brown's banking and Bank of England reforms were likewise damaging. In awe of Blair, the Tories thought all this was very clever. They left it in place, hoping to use the new system to their benefit. But Blair had packed the NGOs and institutions with his people. And in subsequent years, they've slowly taken over and turned on their host. Not only is this apparent in the way an elected government struggles to enact manifesto policy and push through legislation, I believe it's also affected the Tory party itself. Having made changes to its constitution and centralised candidate selection, the parliamentary party has become an unmanageable morass of factions, a church so broad its foundations no longer support it. But these factions are no longer muttering from the backbenches. They drive policy because they have redress to the aforementioned NGOs and legislation. The Climate Change Committee and Net Zero Group will kick and scream and use the law and House of Lords, if necessary, to block government proposals. 
The same with immigration, diversity, the NHS and so on. So you say more reason why the Tory party needs to be destroyed. Part of me agrees. It certainly needs reform and to revisit its roots. But before we lapse into a state of false security based on Labour's lack of fiscal headroom and the unlikelihood that EU will ever offer acceptable terms for us to rejoin, we should keep in mind who has their hand up the back of the ventriloquist dummy known as Sir Keir Starmer. I fear we'll end up with a new Labour redux, a completion of the Blair project and all the damage it's wrought on this great nation. Starmer wants to be backslapping in Davos rather than debating in Westminster. There are signs the Tory party might reform, helped by a strong opposition from the Reform Party and civic movements like Together and academics like Matt Goodwin. The Conservative Democratic Organisation is pushing on the Constitution. New Conservatives and others are pushing on policy. What we need and must hope for is a new restoration. Maybe, just maybe, we're still in the last chance saloon. The alternatives are not just bleak, but I think existential. I'm indebted to Planet Normal for some semblance of sanity. Best regards, Bruce. Well done, Bruce. You can be the Prime Minister. This is from Josh. Dear Alison and Liam, I very recently met Halligan on a street corner in Liverpool on my return from the gym. I must thank him for obliging a photo and a shake of the hand, but also to add my gratitude, including that of my family, for you and Alison, plus so many others that have boarded the rocket of right thinking. Like countless others, you kept us all sane throughout the dark times of lockdown and beyond. I forgot to ask Liam to pass on my thanks to Alison. Well, he wouldn't have done that anyway, Josh, to be honest. We never pass on thanks. (laughs) (laughs) We're men. (laughs) (laughs) Particularly on behalf of my sister, who wrote into the podcast in the dark days of lockdown on the occasion of her pregnancy challenges and railing against inhumane restrictions in hospital. Alison's warm words and articles were of great comfort to her, as well as many more, I'm sure. I work at sea, says Josh, but I hope one day to attend a Planet Normal event, where I hope to meet the other orthogonal to the orthodoxy co-pilot. She's the better half. Keep up the podcast. I never miss an episode. Many thanks and kind regards, says Josh. What a lovely email from Josh, and it was very nice to meet him. Amazingly, actually, lots of people at the Labour Party conference came up to me and said, oh, I love Planet Normal. I don't tell my friends. (laughs) We're a guilty pleasure. We are a guilty pleasure indeed. Here's an email from Dudley. He's sending us a picture from a cake shop window. I couldn't believe what I saw at our local Wenzel's bread shop in Hitchin, said Dudley, whilst appreciating that a man's pastry appendage might easily break off. It is sad that Gingerbread Man is now a gingerbread (laughs) person, obviously a casualty of wokery, or whatever that up-to-date term is, long may you carry on. Regards, dud. I think that's a little part of shrinkflation, isn't it? You get a little <laughs> bit less for your money when gingerbread men are gingerbread people. Gingerbread person. Oh, they'll be coming for you next, Alligan. No red-blooded male is safe. And finally, from David, Enoch Powell's infamous Rivers of Blood speech was actually given in April 1968, not 69, as stated in your latest podcast, I'll get my coat. Thanks, David, for pointing that out. We do strive for accuracy, but every so often, one slips through. And so that's it from Planet Normal on that bombshell as we leave our Sanctuary of Sweet Reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week. It's my turn this week. And I think it has to go to Josh. Because, Josh, it was really nice to meet you. Thanks for saying hello. So, Josh, send us an email to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Put in the subject heading mug winner. Give us your address and we'll try and get the Planet Normal mug to you before you go back to sea so you can take it with you and it can roam around the world. 
If you enjoy Planet Normal, please do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. They're extremely cheering to read those remarks and it does really help other people to find us as well. Before we go, 10 second cat <laughs> update. How much? <laughs> Have you got a sort of massive thermometer in the corner of your living room, like a blue Peter appeal <laughs> from the 70s is the amount of money that comes in goes up camera points to it but in your case it's the amount of money going back to the door this is a five-figure cat can we just confirm that it's costing you at least 10 grand to get this rancid moggy back from turkey she's looking very healthy on all the money i'm sending to turkey to uh, do you remember when dennis healy had to call in the imf i think that's where we are yeah she's arriving in um, i think the 12th of december so you'll be her first visitor halligan crikey and as we speed away from our beloved planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers Isabel Wishard, Elliot Lampett, Cass Ho and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.